Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, so this is episode 90 or 100-something of the podcast. I'm never good with the uh, the numbers on which one we are. But uh, point being, we're not a new podcast anymore. But for those of you out there just listening, just tuning in for the first time, uh, let me go ahead and explain. Basically, what we do here in this podcast is I... Um, I invite an author on to discuss a book of theirs that's been newly published or uh, recently published something on something we think you guys would like to hear a conversation about, and then uh, you know hopefully at the end of the podcast or you know even in the middle of the podcast if you get your druthers about you, you uh, go ahead and uh, purchase the book yourself and give it a read. So yeah, so if you like this podcast, uh, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show, and also by sharing with your friends as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Dr. James Lacey. And Dr. Lacey serves as professor and course director for war policy and strategy, as well as political economy at the Marine Corps War College. And he is also the Major General Matthew C. Horner Chair of War Studies at the Marine Corps War College. And prior to that, he spent six years at at the Institute for Defense Analyses, working on a number of projects dealing with the economics of war the then current conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, strategic communications, and long-term U.S. strategic policy. He was an active duty duty military officer for 12 years, serving in the 82nd and 101st Airborne Divisions and United States Army Army Europe headquarters. Uh, He retired from the Army Reserves in 2005 after 24 years of total service, and he has extensive experience in several Wall Street firms focusing on capital market operations. He was also a journalist with Time Magazine and was an embedded reporter during the 2003 invasion of Iraq and is extensively published in financial, military, and opinion journals. Uh, He is the author of, among others, The uh, The Washington War, FDR's Inner Circle, and the Politics of Power that Won World War II, The First Clash, The Miraculous Greek Victory at Marathon and Its Impact on Western Civilization, Uh, Takedown, the 3rd Infantry Division's 21-Day Assault on Baghdad, and Gods of War, History's Greatest Military Rivals, and Moment of Battle, The 20 Clashes That Changed the World, both of which were co-authored with Williamson Murray. And uh, lastly, he is the author of Rome, Strategy of Empire, uh, which was published back in August by Oxford University Press, and is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Dr. Lacey, thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for the invite, listening to that intro. I, I can't decide if I'm doing pretty good or just can't hold a job. <laughs> uh, I think you're doing pretty good, so uh, yeah, yeah, keep it up. Uh, so I wanted to make sure I, I covered everything so everyone knows where you're, where you're coming from when you're writing about all, these, uh, all the things in the book here. But uh, I guess before we get started on the book, so, uh, basically, uh, what, when we say strategy... Uh, what do we? What is strategy? What do we mean by that? Um, yeah, I have a whole chapter. It's a, it's a very <laughs> short chapter that just lays out that argument and debate. And you know, typically, the easiest solution is ends, ways, and means. And now, and and then, and then the risk of doing that. Um, now, every person who considers a professional strategist has now shouted at the. Uh, whatever they're listening to this podcast on, and said, no, no, it's a lot more than that. Um, yeah, that's, I've, I've, I've read over a thousand definitions of strategy. <laughs> um, uh, you know, the simplest is, 
you know, what's your plan to make somebody do what you want them to do? Uh, that's 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 the goal. That's <laughs> that's the end. I wish to accomplish something. And there's the ways. What do I have to accomplish it with? And then the means. What what do what do I have to do to accomplish it? And then finally, risk. You know, if I do X, what are the risks involved? You know, and you know, if I invade, if I invade. Ukraine. I, I'll use a third of my army. It should take me two or three days, and the risk is it will. The risk involved is it might go longer. NATO will get involved and it turn into a global nuclear Armageddon. You know, seven <laughs> or eight months down the line, ten or twelve months down the line. Oh boy. So, uh, you know, whenever whenever you talk about strategy, whatever your plan is, whatever your end state is and whatever you mean uh mean, you know whatever means you have a, you have to do it the means will not be sufficient the end state will change as soon as you start doing something and whatever you know whatever method you have decided to do it will be ruined by friction because there's somebody on the receiving end of your strategy that has a vested interest in making sure it doesn't work I, I I don't know if I could be any clearer than that. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, I wish I can't wait to hear this on the podcast because I'm going to use this in class. So I'm coming up with the definition of strategy. All right, great. So uh, so the book. Um, uh, so basically, uh, tell me if I'm wrong here. So uh, basically, the historical consensus is or was <clears throat> for a long time uh, that the Roman Empire never had a preconceived strategic plan that uh, everything was sort of ad hoc on the whims of whoever was emperor at the time uh, that the Roman Empire was uh, was not proactive it was responsive uh, sort of events dictated strategy uh, that sort of thing is that consensus wrong uh, could and did the Romans do strategy and i mean did they even have the concept concept of strategy back in antiquity or you know what we think of when we're talking about strategy that that did that even exist simple answer yes long answer i'll take up the rest of your podcast <laughs> go for it <laughs> go for it you won't have to ask any more questions from this point on um this whole this whole thing started with uh with uh professor luke walk um I always say Herman, but it's Edward Lubbock. Um, uh, wrote a book on the grand strategy of the Roman Empire almost probably 45 years ago, maybe a little longer. And it was the first time anyone ever considered such a thing. And he was not a Roman specialist. And I believe the antibodies of the specialist who had not considered this previously just came out who is this interloper in our field he was a strategist that's he was a that's that was his job title that's what his thing was and this was his phd um phd that he had published phd dissertation that he had published so it was um it, for a little bit in a, in a lot of areas people said whoa this is very interesting i remember reading it as a youngster and saying this is very interesting it wasn't until I started doing a lot of independent study on warfare that I realized the Roman historians, almost to a man, hated it. Uh, I should say man and woman hated it. Um, the consensus over the years turned into not only did Rome not have a strategy, 
<coughs> excuse me, they were incapable of thinking in strategic terms. Um, it was impossible for them to even consider a strategy. And then you have to ask yourself, well, if they couldn't think in strategic terms, how did all those legions land up lined up all along the Rhine and the Danube River? If you don't have a strategic plan, they, they're just as likely to land up in Marseille, sunning themselves on the, on the Mediterranean beaches. Mm. Somebody has to say, you know what, we're going to take on a huge expense, you know, one, one half or more of the entire budget of the Roman Empire, move 400 to 500,000 soldiers to the edge of our empire, and, uh, and leave them there. You know, but for, for, to believe that the Romans did not have a strategy means that they spent half their budget or more on a military force equal or greater than any the world has ever seen or was again going to see again into the modern era and did it every single year for 500 years without anyone in the government saying, why are we doing this? It just beggars belief. Mm -hmm. Now, when you read the arguments historians, ancient historians have put together to defend their position that this is, that Luke Walk's findings are all nonsense. Now, you know, my study shows Luke Walk, had, there's a lot of problems with Luke Walk's work, and he did over-systemize it, and he, you know, he left out a lot of stuff, such as, you know, naval warfare, the economy, diplomacy, all things that impact on strategy don't make it into Luke Walk's work. His book is basically, here's the frontiers and here's Whitehead Air. Um, but, you know, the, some of the, some of them, are, some of them are funny. I, I just laugh at them. You know, mm. one scholar made a very serious try. Um, hey, the Romans did not employ the same methods everywhere. So that that's absolute proof that they were incapable of having a, of strategic thinking. And which a real strategist would say you, the High, the highest level of strategic thinking means you apply different remedies based on the situation. In England, you have Hadrian's Wall. In, in North Africa, you have something else. Against the Persians, you have something else. To use the same strategy against very different threats is strategic stupidity. Mm. That, that, that was accepted. That, that made its way into the Cambridge uh, ancient history books as part of their reasoning. Um, the biggest thing they say was, since Rome didn't have maps, how could they think strategically? All they had were these things called itineraries. And um, the important part of that is an itinerary is just a list of places. You know, uh, if you use Waze and you take it off map view and you look at the, um, you know, you push out with, with where each stop is, it's a list of turns going down. Well, the old, the old way we used to do it on uh, uh, MapQuest, whatever it was. MapQuest, was that it? MapQuest, uh, yeah, I think that was it. Yeah, yeah, here's a list of all the places. Here's all the places you turn in route. An itinerary is a, you know, if you want to go from Rome to Cologne, you will first go. You will first stop at this town. That's three days march. Then you'll stop at Ravenna. That's four days march. And it will list every major town along the on the route, and how long it will take you to walk between each one of them. It's a it, you could take all of the territory underneath, it, and it will just be a 
bunch of dots with numbers written on the line in between them, uh, the connecting lines telling you how far. And they said, well, that's obvious that you, no one could plot a strategy using that, except that is precisely what the United States and every military in the world uses to do strategy now. Yeah, right. We, the U.S. military does not need a map of anything. What it needs is a list of notes. You know, so if we want to do, if we want to move forces to the Ukraine, all we need is all the airfields and ports. Those are dots that we can outload stuff from the United States, where it's going to land in Europe. So another bunch of dots, Hanover, um, Hamburg, Antwerp, Rotterdam, the major ports on the North, on the North Sea and that, that vicinity, or airfields in Poland, and a little number connecting each of those lines and what, what, what you're going to use a transport ship or plane and how long it's going to take. And then the and then the rail lines. That is it. The United States military does not need that maps. It needs network analysis. Hmm. The Romans are using precisely what we use now in the 21st century. You know, how how many how many stops between here and Persia? How many how many days in between? And then all it is a matter of sending messengers. Three legions will arrive in 18 days, have this amount of wheat and other foods available when they get there mm-hmm. to, the go- to the governors. Uh, 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 this, is a, this, is like the, this was like the killer argument. They have no maps. They have itineraries. And any strategist who looks at that argument says that's ridiculous. Itineraries or network maps is exactly what they need. I mean, in fact, we, we talk about network warfare or nodal warfare. How do, you know, uh, hey, here's, here's the Russian supplies. They move from southern Russia into Crimea and up into the uh, battle areas. And there's five stops along the way, and here's the roads in between. Oh, and by the way, this bridge over the Kerch Straits is very vulnerable, so let's blow that up. Mm-hmm. And now we've destroyed that entire section of the network. Yeah. So, the Rome, the Romans were, had very, very sophisticated strategic thinking, and uh, we—I don't think the Western world became as um, strategically sophisticated again until uh, you know, the Enlightenment. There might have been some, there might have been some brief flashes of such sophistication along the way, mm-hmm. but it really wasn't until Enlightenment and well into the Enlightenment that we were able to think in the as strategically on a grand scale as the Romans did. Yeah, and when you say they don't, uh, you know, the army doesn't need maps or anything like that, but, I mean, that's just, that's sort of at, like, the strategic level, but at the actual, like, on the, like, at the tip of the spear, uh, the guys on the ground, like, yes, then it's, you know, (laughs) maps are good, maps are nice. (laughs) Yeah, at that level, they can use maps, and the Romans had those kind of maps, and they had guides, and, Mm -hmm. you know, their sophistication was about at the same level Frederick the Great, you know, I put this in the book. Frederick the Great once said, find a local burger, make him tell you everything he knows about the area, and tell him if he uh, if he lies to you that you're going to hack his entire family to death right in front of him. Uh, <laughs> the world, the Western Europe does not have highly accurate maps until just before World War One, when the Austrians put together a tremendous project to 
map and a very fine detail mm-hmm. the, the western the western world mm-hmm. but uh napoleon's maps were horrible but nobody says napoleon was not thinking at a strategic level right he obviously was sure um the real problem is so much has been lost i mean I, I, I never did a count, but if you stack up everything le- that the Romans have left us in writing, you, know, you could probably read through the whole thing in three to six months. Yeah, like, <laughs> like so almost uh, probably like 99% of the ancient sources, uh, uh, you know, things from then are just sort of lost to time. You yeah. know, that we, yeah. we have no... Uh, we have no copies of or anything left, so I mean, right. we really don't know much. Right. We find, we find these comp- little fragments that say, I took this from so-and-so's 99 volumes on the war. Mm-hmm. We don't have a word of that. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, things along that line. Right. You know, but uh, the, all the chance, you know, the, 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 the Roman emperors and the governors had staffs, and they had tremendous amount of files that they can they could access like what was the tax rate here 10 years ago what what legal argument was given in to this exact situation 50 mm-hmm. years ago almost virtually all of that is gone a little bit of papy- papyrus that we've recovered in egypt has been incredibly insightful but even that's a fraction of what the romans actually I should say fraction, a minute fraction of a minute fraction of what the Romans actually produced. Yeah. So everyone's everyone's yelling out of silence. That, <laughs> here's what I believe. There's no evidence whatsoever to support me or to contradict me. So I'm right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, you know, and I don't want to insult Roman historians. Some actually believe. Some there's a growing number that believe the Romans could fix strategically. I think my book will convert all of the rest. Um, I mean, or, yeah, I was sort of it, like it's just it. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but it's just yeah, it just sort of seems um, not plausible that a empire could last, you know, half a half a millennium, uh, millennium without uh, you know just sort of flying by the seat of its pants and just winging it, you know. Well, all all strategies are to a degree ad hoc. Mm. I mean, some are so well thought out. Let's say. National Security, NSC-68, which basically underpinned our deterrence and Cold War strategy. And it was adaptive. It had lots of changes along the way, but the foundational strategy lasted until the Russians collapsed, almost five decades. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the... the, uh, Where was I going with this? The... But, you know, many strategies you know, are temporary and, and meant to get you past a certain, certain amount of time. You know, mm-hmm. we had, Russia had one strategy 10 months ago. Now it's, now it's in the ad hoc world. How do, how do I get out of this without, and save face at the same time? Or is there any chance that the West is going to get tired of this and Ukraine will eventually fall? Um, whatever their strategy was when they started the war, They've gone to ad hoc. Mm-hmm. So whatever strategy Rome has to keep in the barbarians on one side of the frontiers and the Romans on the other side, protected on the other side, let's just pick a date, 406, 410 area, when the Rhine, Rhine, the Rhine just colla- frontier just collapses, 
you may have a strategy. You know, I'd like to get my frontier back to what it was, but you have entered the realm of ad hoc. You, but if you don't have a plan to begin with, then then ad hoc is incredibly, incredibly difficult. You have to have mm-hmm. a a place you, you, you want to go, a basic foundational understanding of strategy that when everything is perfect, the empire looks like this and all the bad people are on the outside and all the good people are on the inside. And, you know, we, we, we will adapt as necessary to make sure that keeps happening. Yeah, and uh, just backtracking a little bit, just, you know, talking about most of what the Romans, you know, written down has been lost through time. Another problem for anyone trying to study Roman strategy is that the writers of antiquity uh, really had no interest in events that are, or that are, in the events that are crucial to our to our understanding of of Roman thought, strategic thought, and strategic action. Um, I don't know. That's true of some of them, yes, but they're to, they're telling narratives, and there are mm-hmm. times when Tacitus lays out something or. Um, somebody else does, but in general, that's likely true. I mean, if we had the debates that went on in the Senate, because they recorded all of that, Mm -hmm. but we don't have it, then we would know there's strategic thinking on any issue. So any, any serious historian is really forced to extrapolate by his uh, by actions, but so Napoleon never left us a record of his strategic thinking either. We have to extrapolate it from his actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, leaving think leaving thinking of on strategic issues is a uh, is a recent phenomenon for for historians. Uh, mm-hmm. it's nothing nothing new for the ancient world. Yeah. But if you, what makes it easy for a, a Roman historian? is the overall strategic stasis. I mean, the Romans got up to the Hadrian's Wall. They, they sometimes went beyond it. They stopped at the Rhine and the Danube. That doesn't mean they don't go beyond the frontiers. They're always active out there economically. If they see a threat developing, the legions will march beyond the frontiers and try and nip it in the butt before it's, you know, before they're fighting it right there at their borderline. Um, they 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 have a specific way of approaching the Persian threat because of the deserts. Mm-hmm. Um, they're quite capable of, uh, you know, and they maintain that same basic formula, you know, for at least the first couple hundred years, and then you have the third century crisis, um, and that leads to some changes on their approach. But virtually no changes on the stated aid ends, mm-hmm. um, and the means over time become less. The third century crisis and then the constant civil wars are just um, rot. No, are just I don't want to say rotting, rotting the empire from within, but it's uh, it's the empire is yes. I, I, it, it, it's committing internal suicide. Yeah, I was gonna say. Would you say that the Roman the Roman Empire was killed by suicide or or more by murder? You would probably say, you know, what 60, would, 60 40 suicide or fifty fifty or. 
I would say, oh, no, I think it gets up to... 80-20? If it wasn't for the Civil Wars, the, the, Roman, the Romans would probably still be lined up on the Danube, on the Rhine. Uh, yeah, these, these civil, repetitive civil wars are just so incredibly destructive. And I think I, think I bring out, which I, I haven't seen, I, I, I take it from Thucydides, where he gives an absolutely horrific... Uh, description of the internal revolutions in Corsaira during the Peloponnesian War. And they, you, know, you got to remember that if two brothers or two co-emperors are fighting, virtually every town and city in Rome has to split. I support this yeah. one or I su in the Roman Empire, I support that one. You know, some will be 100% for one or the other. But there will be numerous cities and towns and villages with divided loyalties. And then when one side wins the Civil War, the people who supported that one now have all the power of the government to attack their enemies, take their property. Um, it, 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 each of these civil wars is a lot more than just two, you know, two people vying for the emperor, emperorship, mm -hmm. the emperor, and matching their legions, you know, so in, at one small point of the empire and seeing who wins. The empire, the people and elites of the empire have to take sides, and God help those who pick the wrong side. Uh, it, it, their lives, their lives now become very nasty, brutish, and short. To quote another philosopher historian, uh, so uh, one civil war is bad. Uh, sure, <laughs> you know, ten, <laughs> ten, fifteen, or more civil wars. Yeah, not great. Period. Not great. And the barbarians can see this. They 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 they're trading with the empire. I mean, look at the frontiers as more of a zone than just a straight line. Mm -hmm. And there's always traffic back and forth across it. And the the barbarians know when there's a civil war. They know when Roman legions have been marched off the frontier to fight in that civil war. And mm -hmm. They know when to come. And at, at certain points during the course of the empire. Uh, it came in. They came in force. Mm -hmm. In the third century, the empire is basically split into three parts, trying to defend itself. And the, and the, the fact that Aurelian was able to bring it back together, the, the restorer of the world, and make it look like the empire before the third century crisis, is, is pretty much a testament that they had a foundational idea, a strategy of what the empire should look like, what it should include, where its borders and frontiers were, that ideal that they had to get back to, that Aurelian brought him back to and said he has restored the world. And then you have Diocletian, you have Constantine, um, who, who maintain an empire that looks just like the first 200 years of the Principate with minor ex exceptions on the margins. Uh, Dacia is gone and things along Niles' lines. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, but after Constantine's death, the, the, the center can't hold. It's civil war after civil war. I call that chapter four, bat four battles, and four, four defeats and a victory. They did win one, mate. One, one thing went right, but it was just major battle, defeat, major battle. And the, the, the empire from that point on, from, you know, after the civil wars between Constantine's sons, uh, it's, it's a miracle that went on as long as it did. It shows the 
the economic might of the empire was so great that it could take horrific damage and still keep itself going. You know, but eventually, yeah. you know, when, as long as their tax spine was intact, the richest provinces were whole and operating. Rome could always recover. Yeah, so that's. Uh, uh, I just want to say, yeah. Well, uh, sorry, to but um, you know, people, you know, people think, well, they hear about the Pax Romana, you know, the Roman peace in that period, and they, and, but then they read about it, and all these civil wars are happening, and there's still all this fighting on the frontiers of the empire, or the right. you know, the boundaries of the empire, and they think like, well, that doesn't seem very peaceful. But uh, the point is, of the, or what the Pax Romana really meant is that the the core, as you mentioned, the core. Uh, territory of the empire, this, that sort of Mediterranean littoral, uh, right. the, that Mediterranean rim, for pretty much for half a millennia was uh, free from uh, free from war, and right. led that that core of the empire to because uh, it was at peace to invest in all kinds of uh, you know uh, technologies and infrastructures to. Um, and trade and whatnot that uh, you know kept the empire going uh, and was made it able to uh, you know uh, put the legions in the field uh, you know uh, keep up the, the the naval fleets et cetera et cetera et cetera uh, money money to use for diplomacy to you know buy off uh, you know client states or you know buy off the Sassanids or buy off the you know uh, the some of the German tribes or something like that. Uh, but it was really, uh, even though there was fighting at the, the periphery of the, of the empire, that, that core part of the empire really remained, uh, right. relatively pr- pretty much completely safe for, you know, half a millennium. Um, yeah, at least for the first couple hundred years of the Principate is mm-hmm. it's, it's all safe. Um, yes. And then little by little parts of it get stripped away, you know, after, the Goth, Goth surge across the Danube, the Baltic is never the tax-producing area it once was, though it still produces a lot of recruits. Eventually, they get into Gaul and strip it away. What they have to do is the, the richest area is North Africa. If, if they can hold on to North Africa, they will still be able to do to, to come back from any setback. Um, but when the Vandals get into North Africa and strip that away, you know, they were looking at the Huns. It was all right. They, they, went, they should have ignored the Huns, let the Huns take whatever they wanted in Northern Europe, fought off the Vandals. There was only ten or 15,000 of them and protected their tax spine. Chris Wickham, great professor of this period, is, came, is the first person I heard referred to that tax spine. And once that was broken, it was, it was, there was no chance for the empire to ever revive over in the east, it survives because Constantinople keeps the tri- keeps the barbarian tribes from getting into the rich Syrian cult, uh, agricultural lands and protects Egypt, um, so that the the Eastern Empire has a, its own tax spine that really doesn't get cracked until the uh, Saracens, the Arabs, come up from the north in the eighth century. Uh, but you see this today. I mean, we have the Pax Americana. It's been going on since World War II. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean our military isn't fighting on the perimeters on in Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq. Uh, what the trick was to keep the fight away from the core. Uh, 
as America, as you see, watch America retreat from marginal or frontier areas, they go, they get ever more, ever, ever more dangerous. Uh, so if the hegemon retreats, that doesn't make for a peaceful world. Right, it's just, right. It just creates a vacuum for somebody else to move in and occupy that position of power. And if right. nobody moves in, then it becomes uh, chaos. Yes. Yeah. So, so uh, talk a little, um, if you could, describe the the strategic infrastructure uh, of the empire. How are the how are the Romans? What are they using to to maintain their their military preeminence, their uh, their dominance over these areas. You know the roads, the the curses well, publicus, the uh, the limes, those sort of things. How how are the Romans? How are the Romans able to hang hang on to this gigantic empire for as long as they did? You got several parts. The the first that I think is the most important is naval power. Mm. Naval power. Romans are the only ones that controlled naval power in the in the in the Mediterranean and the Black Sea. The Goths fight, break out during the third century crisis. They take over a fleet in the Black Sea and move it to the Mediterranean. It caused no end of trouble. But that naval power allows, even if you're not moving troops, even, let's say you're moving troops from the Rhine to fight the Persians, you might march them overland. But all of their supplies and war material is coming by sea mm. at a fraction of the expense of moving overland and in a fraction of the time. The, per, the reason the Sassanids, the Sassanids could form giant armies, the Parthians, the Sassanids, same, same peoples, different rulers, they form giant armies, march all the way to the Mediterranean, but they can't stay there. They're drawing their supplies from land, some of it from the core of the Persian Empire, Parthian Sassanid Empire, you know, 90 days, 100 days march away. So Rome always has this giant advantage in its capacity to mobilize anywhere along the Mediterranean, faster, more equipment, and then sustain themselves for a far longer period than any enemy. And then the same thing is true of the fleets on the major rivers. You, know, you can move supplies and people much faster on river transport up and down the Danube and the Rhine than any barbarians could move overland. So the... Until, they, until that Rhine-Danube barrier is broken permanently, uh, Rome has a tremendous mobilization advantage. Second, if you do have to move on land, you have a very unique road system, basically built with military in mind, one-way marching straight to the frontier for the fight. If it was built for transport and uh, for trade, it would be wide, the roads would be wide enough for two wagons to pass going in different directions. They're not. So they're they're one-way traffic. If something's coming the other way, it's got to get off the road. So one or the other has to go get off the road. So this network of roads has a tremendous operational and tactical advantage. Once once in the theater of battle or theater of war, Roman roads with fortified cities at every major junction is a unique and almost unbeatable advantage. You know, as one barbarian said, I make peace with walls. It, it wasn't until much, much later, the later part of the empire, barbarians figured out how to get, take a walled city. And I would assume without any evidence one way or the other, 
that they had a lot of help from the city just said the Romans the Roman army is coming to help we might as well find a way to get get along with these guys mm-hmm. uh, so the corporate transmission so the Navy the roads and then the limes or the frontier defenses uh, are crucial is is you know it, you need, you need X amount of troops if they're just all sitting there waiting for barbarians to come. You need a fraction of X if they could defend themselves behind walls, in forts, or in fortresses. So as an economy of force measure, you, know, if, by, by, you, you might only need five legions along the Rhine or eight legions along the Rhine in the early days of the Principate. But the barbarians over this entire couple hundred years become richer, better organized, form form into larger tribal groups or associations, and much more dangerous. The reason you don't need to add more legions against this much more dangerous threat is that you fortified the area, and now one legion can hold an area that if it's not fortified, you might need ten legions to fight to do. So even though those fortifications are expensive, they are people savers. They, you, you can, you know, you can, uh, uh, you, you don't need three million men. The army, the army in the principle, the, when the Augustus takes over and the army four or 500 years later is not much bigger. You know, Diocletian adds some, some, you know, some legions to it. It gets a little bigger during the Diocletian's period, but not, not, not so, not so much that it's, adding an extra strain on the course of the empire because hmm. the empire gets richer the core keeps getting richer during the entire thing i mean if you were a local farmer and you did well and you built yourself a a mill and a fight comes and a war comes or soldiers come through and burn it once they're gone you're very reluctant to build a set, another mill and even if you do you're not enhancing your wealth you just get you're just getting back to where you were before the war started. Right. The Pax Romana makes sure, hey, you could build a mill, and you could build a second mill and a third mill, and no one's coming to wreck it on you. Rome Rome is secured a peace. So everybody is getting much richer inside the Roman Empire. The infrastructure, you know, it's still an agriculturally based economy, but it's, it, the, you know, war was endemic to these societies before mm-hmm. the empire took over. And now a farmer or uh, you know, f- farmers and whatever else can now um, can now produce as much as the land could, you know, the technology the time can handle, and they can trade it. They can bring it to a port and get it, and move it overseas, get a fair price for it. I mean, so the, the army gets cheaper to maintain. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, we use in the Cold War this country spent upwards of 10% or more of its GDP on its military strength. Our military is much stronger now and more advanced on the Cold War, and we spend less than 3% to do that. Um, so, yeah, and we're doing it with a much bigger GDP. Right. Yeah, so if we, if we were spending as a percentage of GDP what they did in the Cold War, our, our, mili- our military would be funded funded at the level of four or five trillion dollars now, uh, not not seven fifty seven hundred fifty eight hundred billion. Mm-hmm. So the 
the Romans, if they put uh, you know, 5% of their GDP against war, you know, and their GDP doubles over the course of the Principate, let's say, they could, they could have they could have had 60 legions instead of an average of 30 legions, um, but they don't. They 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 put they reinvest that money into other things. Uh, um, the 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 army gets less expensive the longer the empire exists yeah. until until the end. Yeah. Now, does it? Uh, you mentioned you know the Roman navy uh, really being the bulwark of the empire. Uh, to a degree, does it seem like to be uh, that naval power uh, throughout history is sort of the key? Like, if you're going to be the the hegemon, um, it's always it seems like it's always the countries or the empires with the navy, uh, you know, the the unparalleled navy that are the hegemon. Whether it's the United States or uh, the British Empire during the you know the Pax Britannica uh, or Rome or anything like that is is is, is the Navy really the, the, the key thing? Yeah, I mean, if you want to be a global power, global hegemon, you need, if you want to be the global hegemon, you need to be the global naval, naval power. Um, I mean, that's, that, it's been true since Athens. You know, the, the world then was the Mediterranean, the, whoever had the biggest, strongest fleets. When Rome became a power, it did so by beating the Carthaginian Navy. Everything. Once the Carthaginian Navy was swept from the western Mediterranean, everything else was just a matter of time and patience. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Hannibal eventually had to lose. The Romans just had too many people, and getting him any help or support for a na- Roman naval blockade was 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 a very difficult thing to, to to sustain over over 16 years or a decade. I mean, he could still move. He could still get his army back to. Um, Carthage at the end, but it's it, it, every, it, everything gets easier for the Romans and harder for their enemy. Right. Um, now, what might be changing today is what you really need is naval power defined as who controls the sea lanes. Mm-hmm. Can I move what I want where I need to move it? And Rome was always able to do that until, you know, until at least. You know, a little bit, a little bad spot in the third century crisis, and then when the Vandals actually captured most of their fleet in North Africa, that was, that was a bad. Yeah. So if you're a moderate strategist, though, you get into it. We we have a new dilemma in missiles. So the the Chinese have a, you know, a DF-26 and DF-21s that can reach out well past the second island chain. Mm-hmm. Um, at least two to second island chain. So, you know, any any of our major capital ships that go west of Guam are going to be targeted by these missiles. So, what? How is missiles missile technology trade changing naval strategies? When we get to a point where we can control the sea lanes from the land because of a large number of very cheap missiles, as compared to a ten billion, fifteen billion dollar aircraft carrier. Um, this is this is what strategists today are wrestling mm-hmm. with. We know, yeah. we know that to be a global ha- power, you have to be able to control the sea lanes. But now we're wrestling with what's do we need? Do we actually need ships to control the sea lanes? And if we do, do they actually have to have people on them? Can we just put out giant, semi-invisible, submersible uh, missile platforms? Um, 
There's, do, do we still need Navy ships? But if we if we do, do they have to maneuver under missile protections? That, you know, jump from island to island. And each of these islands are giant missile bastions with defensive missiles. So the 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 the, the objective has stayed the same. You know, the end control the sea lanes. Which, if we go back to that, ends, ways, means. Mm-hmm. But the means might not be, you know, the biggest navy anymore. It might be, the, you know, the one with the most, with the, you know, with the U.S. military off it calls global strike. I could hit, I could hit anywhere in the world from bases in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Missile, drone, long-range aircraft that actually don't need, you know, bombers don't really need pilots anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, you know. I don't want to lose, but the fighter community that might buy my book, but <laughs> the, the, they'll fight this to the, to the to the end. But oh, that was a big part of Top Gun. The new one was, uh, you know, the the fighter fighter pilots are on their way out. Yeah, yeah. well, you know, don't look to Top Gun was a great, fantastic movie and very entertaining. Mm-hmm. But all I ask myself is, why did they send? Pilots, why didn't they just send pre-programmed drones to go straight down that the the path they have to go? Yeah, yeah. They're not affected by G-forces. They 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 make all the turns exactly at the right moment, uh, and uh, you know. <laughs> but then it wouldn't have been a movie. Yeah. Did you hear the? Did you? Uh, sorry for uh, the tangent, but did you hear the theory that um, that Maverick actually dies when he's ejecting from the? Uh, the experimental sort of spacecraft that he's yeah. uh, test piloting, and that the rest of the movie is just sort of like a, a dream, or like he's in like fighter pilot purgatory or something like that. <laughs> that it's all that all that all the stuff after that didn't really happen. That's just Maverick imagining that it did. Somebody, somebody, somebody's overthinking the movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah. But speaking of uh, fighter pilot, uh, sorry, I know we're getting off topic a little bit, but but all this plays into you know uh, today's strategy. But I've yeah. had this conversation with a, a couple people on different podcasts about you know whether or not uh, aircraft carriers uh, themselves are just basically I get, maybe not obsolete, but the point is uh, that the the defensive or the offensive technology that uh, countries like China and everybody, the anti ship technology that they have now. That basically the aircraft carrier, it's they're so costly to build, and they're so, and they have so many um, uh, service servicemen aboard, sailors and marines. You know, I think it's what like five thousand, three thousand, four thousand on each aircraft carrier at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, that because of that, uh, because of the number of men on them, and because of their cost, and because of the psychological. Uh, effect it would have on the country if one of them were sunk that they basically cannot use the aircraft carrier the way the aircraft carrier is intended to be used because they can't risk losing one and if you can't risk losing something then there really is no point in building it because it has no purpose (laughs) you know what I mean we're not going to solve that problem in the time allotted to us here Uh, yeah I mean, I I I listen to, I listen to I teach at a war college, mm-hmm. and, you know, a maritime war, the Marine War College, but maritime warfare, uh, and the, the, these these debates are not just academic; they're brutal. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, 
the, the both sides of lockdown. Tons of stuff is classified. You know, how are we going to sneak in, sneak out, that kind of stuff. Uh, um, what what tech, you know what what surprises do we have, and you know, can we anticipate what surprises the enemy may have? But the, you know, we've been dealing with this since for a long, long time. I mean, if Nel- when Nelson goes in to fight at Trafalgar, the the HMS Victory is getting pounded for a couple of hours. I mean, I, some of those things took some of those British ships took, you know, multiple hundreds of hits. Uh, but now, it, but they, they were they were very resistant, very survivable. Mm-hmm. Now a modern day ship takes one hit, it's crippled, two hits, it's going down. Uh, that's not just carries; that's anything. Yeah. And this is the dilemma that we've been working since, you know, World War Two. You know, one kamikaze hits the USS Saratoga; it's a crippled ship. Two of them, it's we're probably going to lose it. The fragility of ships has been a major problem. Now. These carriers are very well protected. At some point, you have to ask, are we using 90% of our combat strength to defend the carrier? And if so, could that could that be better used elsewhere? Mm-hmm. And the Navy is going to come around to this. I mean, they held on to black battleships much longer than they should have. Uh, I'm at, but, you know, on the other side, I'm like, you know, these battleships are almost indestructible. Load them up with a hundred thousand drones and send them in. Or, mm. Once once they reach a certain point, just release all the drones in these giant swarms. They, yeah. they may come back and have a use after all. I don't know. Well, we've all turned we turned them all into museums now, though. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what are we? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, you know. Some weapon systems survive because they're just great platforms. Yeah. We have B-52 pilots who are flying planes that their grandfathers etched their name into the metalwork. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's such a great platform. It can carry unbelievable amounts of stuff. But instead of carrying bombs that's going to drop from directly overhead, it's just going to fly to the edge of the combat zone and release dozens, hundreds, or thousands of missiles or drones. Mm-hmm. Um, so it gets a new mission. So, you know, I... I think when we start doing our next iteration of major technology buys, the one thing I recommend is buy buy a platform that you know could be that you could staple anything onto. The M1 tank's still good because we put we just kept putting new stuff on top of it. Yeah. And it had the engine power and the strength to to survive. And now we're going to probably put um, active armor. Act, I forget what it's called. Uh, uh, active, active defensive arm, active, active system, uh, active defensive systems. There's a word for it. I'm getting it wrong. Are we getting? A, we're getting a new light tank too, aren't they? Testing something, uh, not a heavy tank like the the Abrams, but yeah, uh, a um, new. I forget the name of it, but. Uh, you know, when you get a tank, I, I I want to be able to stop big things. Yeah. Uh, a light, you know, a light tank, as they used to say about the. Light armor in Vietnam, does a 50 cal go right through it? No, it just goes in one side and rattles for a while, you know. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not sure what, you know, if it's up to me, I would just give tank buying and armed personnel carry and buying back to this, back to the, um, the branch that uses it. So tankers should get to pick out the next tank. Mm-hmm. We have this giant acquisition branch that does all the buying, and we haven't had a, we haven't gotten a good, artillery, aviation system, tank, 
since uh, since we created Acquisition Branch. Mm-hmm. And the big five left over from the Reagan era and designed 15 years before that. Yeah. So we have people who are not going to use the equipment trying to design the perfect weapon for the people who are going to use it. Right. Are tanks... Are tanks on the way out anytime soon? Either because um, you know, a lot of people talking about you know, just the the Russian performance in Ukraine and how the Ukrainians are able to you know uh, knock out uh, something close to a, a, a thousand tanks or vehicles by now with you know shoulder carried weapons and that sort of thing, drones, etc. Something that can move on the bat- move rapidly on the battlefield, fight and seize terrain, and hold it and. Uh, that's only going to be done by armored personnel carriers with infantrymen who can unload and dig into the ground and, and tanks. The, the mm-hmm. problem with the Russians is not that they that tanks are outdated or outmoded or obsolete. It's that they're... Their infantry they, didn't they, do what they're supposed uh, to do, basically, when... Well, yeah, yeah the, the Italian tactical groups only had 400 infantrymen in them. Uh, a very small amount of infantrymen. And once those were killed or wounded, the tanks were were vulnerable, mm-hmm. as they always... I mean, it's never been just tanks. It's always been combined arms. You go in with tanks, aircraft. In the future, we'll go in with tanks, aircraft, helicopters, infantrymen, artillery, missile. It's, it, you know, it's it's not one system. It's a combination... It's, you know, combined arms. It's a, right. it's a co- combination of systems that all support each other, protect each other. But uh, when you... When you break up that combined arms group, so the artillery isn't supporting the armor anymore, and the infantry is gone to ground, run away, or been killed, tanks are tanks are unique, uniquely vulnerable in that environment. Mm-hmm. So I don't think the tank is going away. I think I, you know, the, the Ukrainians are conducting a tank-led offensive right now. You know, they're not walking between from, across the the Donetsk basin. Tanks mm-hmm. are now. So now carriers are carrying them, uh, but they're doing it. They're doing it a lot more professionally than the Russians are. Yeah, the I love I love seeing the videos of like the Ukrainian like farmers like hooking up their tractors to, <laughs> to Russian tanks and like towing them in. You know, there's a, uh, meme, there's a meme out there of a Russian tank and you know about a hundred yards away there's a parked um, parked tracker uh-huh. on the Ukrainian plane. The predator stalks. It's on. <laughs> the predator is. It's, it's something like you would listen to on a nature channel. Yeah. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> it was pretty funny. I was at an air show a couple of years ago, and uh, they had their. They actually had an old Sherman tank, um, right. and it, uh, and a couple other things. They were doing like demonstrations of like mm-hmm. World War Two like combat ground demonstrations. Right. But there was uh, there was a fuel truck or a water truck. I can't remember what it was, because um, a lot of the planes were parked in uh, on the turf, and uh, there was an area where there was like a lot of mud, and this fuel this tanker truck got stuck in the mud, and yeah. they basically went up to the guy, whoever was you know driving the Sherman, and was just like, hey, can you <laughs> Can you help pull this out of the out of the mud? And he was like, "Yeah, sure." And he, you know, just drove over and hooked the thing up to the tank and just pulled it right out. And I was just like, "Man, you know what? I I was like, when was the last time a Sherman tank was used 
the United States to like pull something out of the mud. I was like, it's probably been a very long time you that know, that's if, happened. If there are tankers, listen to us. Remember the, you know, I was a light infantry guy, but all I hear is tankers talking about the mud of Hohenfels and Grafenbier and mm-hmm. uh, and even even light infantry vehicles. I have spent more time. Digging, digging vehicles out of the mud that I can't remember <laughs> in my life. But yeah. let me let me let me say something. If you yeah. un, if you read my book and understand Roman strategy and how they thought about strategy, all of that still applies today. Yes, strategy has not changed. You know the 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 the, the figures you have to think about in terms of ends, ways, and means, and how you're going to accomplish your strategic task are virtually the same today as they were for the Romans. You know, um, so, you know, one of the things you, you always get is, how do you, te- how, how do you teach modern strategists if you're using the Romans? I could teach modern strategy by, by, by using Game of Thrones or Star Wars. It's just what examples do you want, you want me to pick? Strategy never changes. Mm-hmm. So if you have a good foundational knowledge of Roman strategy over a long period of time, and, and I'm not just talking military strategy, diplomatic strategy, economic strategy, how that was all integrated into one uh, grand strategy, for lack of a better term, because it is a great term, and how, and how policy was developed from those grand strategic designs, you, you, you could apply that to any error in history and any future error that's still coming at us. I mean, we're still looking at... China through the lens of a Thucydides, Thucydides trap, mm-hmm. you know, that what 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 Thucydides wrote 2,500 years ago is still appropriate to thinking about strategy today. I happen to think uh, the author of the Thucydides trap, or what was his book, Destined for War, um, Graham Allison got it wrong, but that's <laughs> a debate for another thing. The fact is, we're still using the examples to relate to modern dilemmas. Right. All right. Well, uh, that's a, actually a pretty good spot to to end it. I think you summed it up pretty well. We've already gone uh, about an hour. I told you I'd keep you about an hour. So, um, yeah, uh, but uh, like I said, uh, normally I ask uh, everyone the last, uh, the last question I ask everyone that comes on the podcast is, um, you know, what would you like the audience or like, what's the one thing you'd want the audience to take away from reading the book? And your last answer or might've been, uh, a pretty good, but if you have anything else to add, uh, you know, feel free to do it now. And just, did you enjoy the book? Oh, I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's all. That's, 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 that's all I really need is <laughs> 10 or 15 people to go on air and say they absolutely love the book and I'm a happy camper. Yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. <laughs> I've still yeah. got a couple of wishes to pay off. Yeah, yeah. I even, I even, I just gave it. Uh, I just gave the copy uh, to my grandfather the other day, so he could. Uh, he said he wanted to read it too. So, so he's. Uh, I told him I was like the. Uh, he's 86 now. I was like the type font's a little small for you, but you yeah. know. Uh, but yeah, every, if all of your listeners will get 50 copies for their friends and relatives Christmas time, you'll make them happy and me, and me happy. <laughs> Okay, right, yeah, absolutely. All right, all right. So again, the uh, the book is Rome, uh, Strategy of Empire. Uh, again, really, really enjoyed this. Uh, you know, uh, if anybody out there, if you're you know sort of a Roman uh, history buff or you know just a military history buff or you know into thinking about questions of 
of strategy and grand strategy and you know what that means and what that entails um, really really uh, you know uh, well done uh, study on that and I highly highly recommend the, the book out there to you uh, to everybody out there so again yeah Rome strategy of empire the author dr. James Lacey dr. Lacey uh, yeah thank you very very much for coming on the podcast and uh, chatting about the book with me and discussing Rome and aircraft carriers and uh, you know other stuff like that I, I appreciate it you're welcome thank you for having me oh no problem and again if you like this podcast please consider leaving us a five-star review and sharing with your friends and if you have books you'd like to discuss with us on the podcast or if you have any questions or comments or anything like that you can reach out to me at uh, tbensonandheartland.org that's t-b-e-n-s-o-n at heartland.org and for more information about the heartland institute you can just go to heartland.org and we do have our uh, Twitter account for the podcast. You can reach out to us there. If you have, again, if you have any questions, comments, whatever, feel free to give us a follow, send us a DM, you know, all that sort of stuff. Uh, you can reach us there at illbooks, at I-L-L books. So check that out. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. So uh, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye-bye. <laughs>